Okay, so I did my best last time to, to bore you as much as I could and get through all the tough stuff. That way the people that really want to hear it, so now this is, this is the, uh, the really exciting part. Okay, so you, you guys made it. Congratulations. All right. Um, so before we start talking about uh, what science says about things, what Torah says about things, um, just a couple of premises. Number one, we're, we mentioned last time that uh, you know, even if whatever science uh, might be, science in other words is like our eyes. That's what our observations, right? Science is a process of observing the world around us, and uh, that's, that's useful. But if your eyes are telling you information that contradicts um, you know, prophecy, then, uh, then you know, it'll have to give away. So that's what we said last time. Uh, so first of all, of course, every word of Torah is true. Um, however, there is one nuance, which is we have to know Torah is given to interpretation. There are different ways to understand the Torah, and there are certain psukim that are uh, not to be meant to be understood literally. Right? Rashi sometimes will Recording say. In progress. That certain psukim don't have a pshat. And uh, you have to go with Jush. You have to understand the deeper level of these psukim uh, because for whatever difficulties there are. So there is definitely room if our eyes are, are telling us that this, is, that this cannot be it. And this is the Rambam and more Nebuchim explains. That if a person knows for a fact that it can't be what the Torah seems to be saying, so then, you, then you're forced to say that Torah didn't mean it, and it means something else, to come and darshan it, or, or uh, explain the Pasuk in some other way. So that's why we're going to be talking about people... People mix, you know, uh, go to different extremes. On the one hand, some people say, well, you know, the Bible says, the Bible says, right? That's one extreme. And the other extreme is, well, the scientists say so, so the Torah must, right? Yeah, so, what do you mean? He's a PhD. So, okay, so we got to quickly take out the red pen and start crossing things out in the Torah, right? So uh, that's... Um, so what we're, the, the guidance that the Rambam provides for us is that if it's something that is clear to us, clear to our seichel, that, that it should be different, then we're forced, it has to be clear, it has to be proven. Then we're forced to look for new approaches to understand the Torah. I mean, we're never going to leave that the Torah is true, but if it is proven that something is not like that, not, not the way that it sounds in the Torah, so we would be forced to look for other interpretations to those psukim. So, 
Step number one is when we're looking at the creation story, which is, of course, going to be the um, thing that we're going to be measuring everything against, everything we're going to be talking about. We're going to say, you know, how does this line up with the creation story? So we have divine utterances. Creation story doesn't just say, and the world um, came to being, and, and here's, what it, here's what it became. We have 10 steps, 10 utterances. We have seven days of creation with involvement, which with each time that Hashem is doing an action, getting involved and doing something positive, stepping in and altering the reality, like the Pasuk says, Vayor Melukim, Yor, Vayor. Meaning Hashem said that it should be this way and the express will of Hashem makes it so. So that is clearly a, uh, at least at that moment, what would be described as a supernatural phenomenon. Now the question is, what happens right after that? What I mean to say is like this. There are two ways to understand what follows. Okay? We say every morning in davening, that Hashem constantly is recreating the, 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 the not, not recreating from, uh, maintaining, let's say, to, to avoid machlaikas, maintaining the act of creation as it is. Hashem uh, does a new, renews, Behol yom every day, my sabracious, the act of creation. So there's two ways we can understand what that means. One is that there is there continues to be a supernatural force, just like the first time, acting upon the world and maintaining the world in the, the desired state. That's called Ashgacha, by the way. Ashgacha is where Hashem maintains the world in the, in the state that He desires it to be in. Alternatively, one could say that, no, that the very utterance itself creates the mechanism, the, the machinery that will generate such a result. In other words, are we talking about the result, for example, um, let's say life, life, uh, animals, plants. Yeah? Is it that the, the, the will of Hashem it generates that end result and then continues to generate it, continues to make it? Or is it that the will of Hashem molds the very laws of nature, laws of the world, laws of physics and everything else, to be such that they should produce this type of a result. You're thinking to yourself, well, what's the difference? They sound very similar. Is anybody thinking that? Or is the difference very clear? You're thinking that. Okay, good. If Charlie's thinking it, it means we have to address it. Okay? So, for example, if 
Hashem just created it right here. And he's maintaining it because there's a certain desire. It should be this way. We'll talk about it a little bit more. But for example, there would be no expectation that this should be replicated elsewhere. Whereas if with that utterance, it came into being the machinery, the, the... the machinery in the, in the physical world, necessary, by machinery I mean the laws of physics and, the, and, the, and the, you know, chemistry and biology and whatever else are, be, are themselves being uh, molded, being created with this utterance. So then, we'd expect that to be uniform throughout the universe. And then potentially one can say, well, if the machinery exists, then why would, why would, it, be, why would it be that you only have vegetation here on Earth, right? Maybe there's vegetation elsewhere. If 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 it's machinery, right? So that is a that is a um, legitimate question that has to be addressed. Now, the story of Noah's box, table of Noah, the flood, Noah's box. This is table. People call it the ark. Ark, I think, like this. Like that. But but it's a box. Table. Brought to you by Amazon. That's right. Okay. Uh, So the... So the... There, Hashem makes sure that Noah brings on all the animals and all the... You know, seed and, and everything. Because the flood is going to be is going to be destroying everything. And there's a and there's a need for continuity. There's a, there's a need that these things should should be brought out from the teva back out into the world. Yeah, like why not make them again? You could, right. That's what I'm saying. Well, again, so for Hashem to make them again, that. Uh, that's not. That's a different question. You know, if, if, it, if it would require a new miraculous act, then we could understand that Hashem is not looking for for a reset. Yeah. Um, so, so perhaps that would that would that would incline us more to say that this is uh, that no, that Hashem created these these uh, beings. Now, once they're here, of course, they they, they operate within within the nature, and then they're able to, you know, uh, to be. But if, theoretically, life were to cease, you know, the, then it would require a, a brand new act. Now, of course, Hashem would make sure that would never happen. That's called Hashgacha. Hashem wants, w- wants it to exist. It, every moment it exists because he, he wants it to exist. So, of course, there, there's Hashgacha on it, and, uh, and such an event wouldn't happen. But, theoretically, if such an event did happen, then it would require a new act of of creation to have, to have uh, plants, to have animals, to have birds, fish, right? So uh, whereas if we say it's machinery and the machinery was put into place, then theoretically it could be allowed to um, just regenerate itself. Okay, that's uh, and uh, that that uh, that latter approach. There's, a, there's an interesting book. He has, some, he has some good points in the beginning by uh, 
uh, Nathan Aviezer. Uh, I wouldn't recommend reading his next book. The second book was uh, sequels are never good. But uh, the first one, he, he, had, he had some good points. Um, but, uh, okay, so the, you know, that, that type of an approach where, where one views the utterances as creating, you know, layering reality into the world, and, and, uh, and then henceforth now this is the reality of the world, that is a, that is a uh, I think, a legitimate way, alternative way from the simple understanding of the psukim. This would be like a, maybe not as straightforward of understanding the psukim, but quite legitimate. And it would certainly allow for a lot more of a um, symbiosis with science if that were to be necessary. We're going to still see if, if, the, if, that is, if that is something that's necessary. Okay, so that's the Torah side of things. Now let's start looking at the science side of things. Um, so last time we touched upon this, some of you maybe weren't here, or it was just right towards the very end, the concept of design, designer. We spoke about that if you see design, you assume designer. And unlike some people who want to write that off to a, um, a prim primitive uh, monkey instinct, that this is uh, just what we see around ourselves, it's actually a very deep fundamental logic. Design can be translated as, maybe remember from last time? What is design? Is is function of many unique components right, uh, working together to create one goal that could not be accomplished uh, individually. That, so that speaks to design. The, the analogy that we used was a mouse trap. Right? It has five different parts, and they're all necessary, and they all work together in order to catch the mouse. So we said that statistically, the existence of any one single such part is not crazy, but the likelihood of all five of them coming together is basically nothing. And especially if you want them to be attached to one another, then, here, then there is nothing, zero, and that's how you know that someone designed the mousetrap. Okay, that's what we said last time. So in, in other words, it's called irreducibly complex. Every part is necessary, every part has a low chance of randomly happening, and all of them coming together is, uh, that's design, okay? So, there's a number of difficulties that scientists have with our universe. There's these, all these um, constants, constants in physics, one of them is big G. Big G is the uh, constant of gravity. Uh, that's, uh, Basically, in other words, boil it down to how strong is gravity? Different forces have different strengths. Magnetic forces have one strength, and uh, and um, you know, chemical you know, bonds uh, have other strength. And gravity has a certain strength. So, speak up now, or forever hold your peace. <laughs> speak up, or forever hold your peace. Right, exactly. So that's what it's called big G. Instead of little g, that would be the relative gravity, wherever you are. Big G is uh, the overall strength of gravity. So that number is a very important number. Uh, because scientists understood very quickly that if big G 
So was a little bit stronger than if you imagine during the Big Bang, right? So you got the Big Bang, which we'll talk about more later. You got the Big Bang, right? So if gravity is stronger, then what's going to happen? You get, first you have the explosion, but then as the bodies start moving away from one another, immediately gravity is yanking on them to pull them back in. So if gravity is stronger, it would look something like that. It would just kind of just pop out a little bit and, co and collapse right back in. Okay? On the other hand, if Big G was a little tiny bit less than what it is, then the Big Bang would look something like this. Right? And we just, everything would just fly away into cosmic dust. I mean, you need, the things should stay close enough together to form clumps of matter, right? The matter should be interacting with other matter. So this big G seems to be extraordinarily calibrated, where if it would be off by a little tiny amount in either direction, there would not be any possibility of anything. And it is just in that sweet spot. That's one big difficulty, uh, and the difficulty is that Big G is, as well as uh, other such constants, seem to be without any governing principles. I'm not a physicist, but this is what physicists say. And this is the mainstream understanding physics, as far as I'm concerned. You check it out, let me know if uh, that's not correct. But uh, the, there is no current Current understanding is that these are random numbers. These are not governed by any other principle. Okay? So big G is one. The nuclear forces is another. Nuclear forces is basically how tightly are uh, neutrons held inside of the nucleus. Okay? So, for example, you know that giant ball that moves through the sky every day right, provides us with all of our energy. Okay, so that happens with through, through little nuclear explosions. Okay, so but, but not just that, but the truth is all of chemistry, right, relies on on the one hand certain level of strength where where if you, where things have a certain consistency, certain um, staying power, right, and if nuclear forces were weaker, things would, you know, basically everything would be radioactive, right? Everything would just be constantly falling apart. You'd have random nuclear explosions happening, you know, everywhere, right? That, that would not, it would be a crazy world that couldn't, couldn't function. On the other hand, if the world was very stable, right, very, a little bit more stable than what it is, then there wouldn't be any nuclear explosions such as are happening in the sun. There wouldn't be you know, combustion and all these other things. It would be, well, the whole world would be just locked in, just locked cold. Right? So on the one hand, locked cold, un, you know, just, just a rock, or one big nuclear explosion. And so the nuclear force, again, is this incredible constant that is, just seems so perfectly positioned to allow life. Okay, that is a big riddle that scientists currently do not have an answer to. A 
electromagnetic forces, all these forces are, are so perfectly designed and yet they are without any governing principle. Now, potentially, potentially, next year, someone might discover a governing principle and explain how actually it makes sense. It all stems from one plus one equals two and th therefore it's uh, not this incredible coincidence. As of now, it is a mystery of science and seemingly um, speaks to a designed universe. You know, like you come in and you come into a room and the temperature is 70 degrees. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the floor is hard and the bed is soft and the yeah. windows are glass and the walls are made out of stone. It definitely seems like design, okay? That, it seems like design. Um, so scientists proposed a very clever solution to this. It's a combination of two things called the anthropic principle and the multiverse. Uh, not metaverse, no, don't get excited. Not the metaverse, it's a different multiverse, okay? Unless you get us a sponsor. This is already the second time you're speaking up. So big tech is in the room, guys. Now we are wearing your Google shirt today. No. My friend who works there is no longer. Okay. So um, multiverse. Anybody, know, anybody here know what the multiverse is? You heard of the multiverse? Parallel. Parallel. Every decision we make. Even for us. Parallel universes, right? And perhaps an infinite amount of them. Right, right. Now, parallel, parallel means that they have no interaction one with the other. That's what parallel means. If, if there's at some point, some very, very distant place in some little tiny way that one could impact the other, it's not called parallel. Parallel means we have no idea about it, it has no idea about us, not just we, humans with our puny little brains, but it means, it means to say there's zero interaction between the two of them. Okay, now let me ask you a question. How testable is that, is that theory? I mean, it's all part in, in logic, because if there is the potential for a design parallel, one, then that No, no, they're not claiming. Transcend every single No, no, so, hold on a second, hold on. They're not saying design. They're saying like this. First of all, again, so it's, it's a completely untestable theory and one that we have no evidence for whatsoever. Zero. Except for the fact that our universe looks so perfect. Looks so good. So the only way you can come up with it is you say there's actually an infinite amount of universe. Number one. And almost all of them, I mean, are junk. Right? This is the good one. This is the good one, okay? Now you're saying, come on! What are the chances? One in, in infinity? What's one divided by infinity? Uh, breaks the calculator. Zero. Okay? Breaks the calculator. So it means, like we said before already, anything like that, any numbers like that, is called zero, nothing. Nonsense, right? That's called never gonna happen. Monkey sitting, typing in a typewriter, never gonna make uh, Shakespeare, right? Okay, so... So, uh, 
So he says, no, that's ridiculous. No, hold on. Come, steps in the anthropic principle. What's the anthropic principle? And it says, you're right that the chances of you landing, let's say if you were outside and you're being like randomly thrown into the multiverse, the chance of you landing in the perfect universe is nothing. But it works the other way around. You're already in there. I mean, all of them, I guess, were tried, right? Because we're the ones thinking, so definitionally, we're the ones that are already in it. And so, therefore, we're, we're the lucky ones, okay? Listen, if it works for you, yeah. Um, good luck, but that, yeah, we, we defined it before, right? Sometimes, Science, sometimes science, there's two ways that science might be wrong. One is hitting a brick wall. It means to say encountering a problem they cannot solve. Alternatively, encountering a problem that they can provide with a very good explanation, it just happens to be that it's wrong. That, that's not how it happened, which we'll talk about examples of, of the second one later. But this one, as far as I'm concerned, is a brick wall. It's a... The, if you have to come on to the anthropic principle with the multiverse, that's, in other words, just say, I don't know. Mishnah Perkyavus, which always trained his mind to say, his mouth to say, any Yodeya, he said, I don't know, that's okay, good, you don't know. Well, there's a simple explanation, it's just not Not science, okay, perfect. Okay, we have a scientist telling us it's not science, good. <laughs> so uh, that is, uh, that's... Yeah, okay, so so the that is, is that a question? No, I'm saying it is, this is like, this is philosophy. This is, this is what I, what I, this is what I would call scientism. It means, in other words, a person who is not, and we're gonna talk about it more next week during Hanukkah, but a person who is saying science must, must provide a solution to every question in life, no matter how ridiculous. So, I mean, okay, so that's what they have to provide. Okay, so that's, again, should scientists be thinking about these things? Yes, because if they can figure out a good, reasonable explanation, it'll be useful for us. So we'll talk about that more as well, how you know, science can be very useful. But to force a you know, uh, a square peg into 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 a, into a round hole. That is, that's a, that, that's a mistake. Okay, now let's move on to the big discussion. Okay, origins of life. Origins of life. Again, remember the game, the rule of the game. What's the number one rule of the game in science? <clears throat> No supernatural explanations allowed. Okay, your job as scientists is to provide natural explanations only. Now, here is the difficulty with life, okay? And people get these things confused. When we're talking about the origins of life, evolution does not help. It's very important. Evolution does not help. Okay? Evolution, which we'll talk about later, is the gradual accumulation of mutations in a living organism which reproduces itself. And it's over many, 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 many generations of, repro of reproduction where 
some of these changes are going to be happening. Okay? But when you're talking about the origin of life, that's, that's one step before that. I mean, you have to first get to life before you can start, start talking about evolution. So the origin of life is a very big problem. Okay? Um, so what you need to come up with is you need to come up with self-replicating building blocks. So somehow, a very simple form of life needs to come about completely randomly, which is going to be very difficult, okay? So uh, one thing that was, uh, that was tried, there was a lot of excitement for it back a long time ago, is the scientists observed that amino acids, you put them into a test tube and you put a bunch of electricity in there and other things, tend to randomly assemble into proteins. Okay? So that was thought, okay, maybe this is going to be the origins of life, right? That you have all these uh, amino acids in a, uh, what is it called, a soup, primordial soup, in a primordial soup covering the entire surface of the earth, which is a huge surface, and the whole thing is filled, filled with amino acids, and there's lightning bolts striking all over the place, providing energy, and they're assembling into all sorts of crazy structures, and, uh, and then until finally you get a, uh, a cell, you know, the, the most minimalistic living cell. That, is, that was a uh, very outdated uh, thought that they once had. Um, the problem is that amino acids are not found naturally. They don't exist. No such thing as naturally occurring amino acids. They're all, so it's just the whole giant primordial soup thing, right? There's no, there's not any amino acids in there. What? The primordial soup brought to you by Campbell's. Campbell's. Exactly. Okay. Um, secondly, amino acid um, binding producing proteins is strongly inhibited by water. They can't do their job in water. Okay, so the primordial soup is very difficult because it's filled with water. The, you know, the face of the heart, size, tohu, vohu, vachoshu, at home, right? The whole thing was covered in water, right? That's, everybody knows that. So, so the amino acid Thing. So there was still some people holding on by the tips of their fingers that perhaps on the there were some volcanoes sticking out of the water and on the lips of those volcanoes where it's dry there could have been some amino acids formed and maybe some of those amino acids randomly combined into proteins so now we just took an entire giant earth filled with a primordial soup and instead we boiled it down to probably like you know, seven square feet. <laughs> right. so, okay, so that's, that theory has fallen to the wayside. Um, so then, then the thought was, okay, maybe nucleotides. So nucleotides are what make up RNA, right? And those things also tend to sometime a little bit form together, 
and, and, and the problem with that is that the, these ones are incompatible with those ones. They, they, they kind of bother one another, and so they couldn't ever be coming together, and that, that also seemed to fall away. Okay, so, so the point is there's no currently seriously working theory as to the, just even the building, I mean, we need self-assembling building blocks. We don't have them. There's, we don't, don't currently have a decent self-assembling building block. But even if you have self-assembling building blocks, right, that's not built, you're still not building buildings. You still need to build buildings, right? Which means a cell, the simplest cell that we can, that we ever found, or we can even imagine is like crazy complicated. It's like a, like a Boeing 747, right? So now think to yourself, how many parts go into you know, a motorcycle or a car? Now, what, what, so even if, let's say theoretically, you had these parts, but for them to all come together randomly, remember, there's no evolution yet because the thing is not alive. There's no, there's no rep reproduction, there's no replication, there's no competition for resources, none of that stuff. So it has to happen totally randomly. It has to come together like that. That is a killer. That's a killer. Okay, so we get we have like a two-stage killer to coming up with the origins of life. Um, because of these difficulties, Sir Francis Crick, you know, he's called Sir. Because he was knighted for discovering the, the double DNA helix. He's a pretty big scientist. He has some friends. They came up. The theory, the theory is that the life here, the way, the way that it's built, life as we know it, which is built from proteins that... Aliens, right? That's right. Aliens did it. Now, now, now I told you we can talk about aliens. We're going to address aliens later, but, but this is, that's right. Why? Because again, the way that life is here, built from proteins, where you need so many proteins are built from amino acids. Many of them are necessary to build one protein. You need many of them to all work together to do any simple tiny little function. You need so many of all these functions for, for the life as we know it. That's not going to work. So, so the proposal is there's aliens somewhere, distant planet, where perhaps they are built from different stuff, some sort of self-assembling crystals, yeah, of sorts. And uh, they became very advanced. And then they manufactured in their laboratories. I'm telling you what Nobel Prize winning scientists are saying. You think I'm joking? Yeah? They, in their laboratories, take out your phone and check it out, assembled, the, for some reason they decided they didn't like the crystal thing, they assembled life forms as we know them, put them onto spaceships and seeded faraway planets. That's us here. Our planet. No, no, I'm saying they, their life, they are working with a different system, different system, for example, you know, like there's different, we have Zachary over there, computer program, budding young computer program, different yeah. systems. Some can be much more simplistic in, in, in the start, right? Certain, certain systems it's easier to get going on, certain systems need like a really high level um, of functionality to start. Right? It's like uh, entry, entries, uh, barriers to entry, right? The Nelson understands in business. You have barriers to entry. So the way the life is here, there's extraordinarily high barriers to entry. So what they're saying is 
maybe there's another way of life, which we're not familiar with, that has much, much lower barriers to entry than once you enter, then you work with evolution, you make your way up, and then you make this kind of an end product, and then you seed faraway plants with those, and then you just don't talk to them for a while. It seems like they just took whatever theory they already have. No, no, come on. And then they're like, well, we can't get this one variable. Okay, let's, uh, let's say it was different somewhere else. Like, it's, you know. Right, right, okay, yeah. So again, so that is, uh, that is another brick wall, right? That's that just brick wall, no, no functioning theory of, uh, of origins of life. Again, not to say that the gates of, of answers are closed. Who knows, maybe a brand new theory being cooked up in some laboratory somewhere right now. And maybe that theory would force us to go back and reassess how life started. I mean, to say what, what the Torah says, right? But if, 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 like the Ram says, if we knew for a fact something different, then maybe then we would be forced to come on to our second way of explaining the Genesis story, where Hashem introduces, let's say theoretically, we discovered self-assembling crystals, on earth and that they really somehow they're the origins of life and then afterwards they like to for whatever reason assemble proteins and let's say it was and, and it was and it was proven then we would say okay so the mice voracious when Hashem was saying let there be this means Hashem was saying let there be self-assembling crystals yeah, that, 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 and then and then etc Hashem was layering on so we could say that we could but as of now we have no need to it's literally, there's no need to because it, it just literally seems to be a supernatural phenomenon, which is perfect because that's what the Torah says. The Torah says it was a supernatural phenomenon, and right now there's no explanation that makes any sense. So that we'll just so we'll leave it as being a supernatural phenomenon. Okay, now and now for aliens. So again, so the alien discussion really hinges on the previous thing that we just spoke about when. Scientists say that they're convinced, convinced that the universe is teeming with life. That's the term they use, teeming with life. Why are they so convinced of it? Because really it's an extension of their assumption that life on earth came about through natural means, which means there is machinery in place to create life. So now, if there's machinery, I mean, the, the, the laws of nature, laws of, the, of physics and chemistry, which we assume to be uniform across the entire universe, with, which has some you know, mind-boggling number of stars and planets, right? And assuming that physics and chemistry work the same in the entire universe, which is a reasonable assumption, and they have an assumption that there is machinery in place within physics and chemistry to create life randomly. So then it is a reasonable assumption to say that from all those planets, it probably also happened many times. Okay? However, if we say that we have no reasonable explanation for how life came about with, with the machinery of physics and the chemistry that we see, and we are forced to conclude that life is 
super is a supernatural occurrence, then we would the only way that you would find life on other planets, if again, if, if there was a supernatural occurrence in that situation as well. Okay, and the obvious question would be, why would we assume supernatural occurrences without knowledge of such? Does that make sense? Um, now, again, it doesn't rule it out. It doesn't rule it out. Maybe, maybe, Hashem created life on other planets. It doesn't rule it out. We're just saying that if life is a supernatural phenomenon, then it would have to have been an act that Hashem did over there. Right? That's our plan A for the, for the creation story. If it was plan B, Hashem created the machinery which does this, then we'd expect that to be also universal, and then we'd expect to see life there as well. Okay? But we're not seeing the machinery. We're not, we're not seeing the machinery right now. So we're assuming it's a supernatural phenomenon. We don't have a reason to assume that it's elsewhere. Now, we, a good thing to do is to check in the Torah. See, perhaps there are some places in the Torah that, uh, that, that uh, might give us insights. Um, so first of all, there is a uh, Pasuk in the Novi, Pasuk in Yeshaya, um, that the Gemara and Brachas Darshan, that the Jewish people, after the exile, they say, Azavani Hashem Shechachani, you've abandoned me, you've forgotten me, and Hashem responds, how could I ever forget you? And the Gemara says, Gemara goes, goes through this incredible story, Hashem says to the Jewish people, well, how could you think that I could forget you? The, I created the 12 constellations, and in them, you know, uh, there's all these it just goes through this endless numbering that each one is comprised of 300 of sub-constellations, and each one of those is comprised of a thousand of sub-sub-constellations. It just keeps on going. At some point, the math, it, it, it's incredible. It's like uh, the, the number is so big that no... I mean, the Gemara almost seems ridiculous. Like, you want to just, like, skip. It's like three... It's like... Like three long lines on the Gemara. You, you did that Gemara? That Flamet base? No? Zachariah? Yeah? And you're thinking to yourself, like, what, what are they... So if you multiply those numbers, it does come out to be some absolutely crazy number. And it's actually not very far off from the number that scientists today are saying that there's a number of stars in the, in the, in the universe. Which is, uh, you know, mind-boggling. Because the number is so big that, like, Nobody, it's like billion, gajillion, you know, Google, just it's so big that nobody would ever think to say such a number. But be that as it may. And Hashem says, and all of this I created for you. So how could you possibly think that I would forget you? Okay, so what is, what is this concept? All of this I created for you. So the morale in Netzach Yisrael provides us with a very deep philosophical uh, point. It's actually, it's like he's addressing something the philosophers said, that being that God is one, and by one we don't mean that there's like another one, I mean that's also true, there's not, but Hashem is absolutely one. 
unified, un undivisible in any way. So then it, it follows that he has a singular rotsam, desire. So we are used to wanting many things. We like, uh, we like this type of food, we like that type of food, we like this type of clothing, that type of clothing, cars, whatever. Why? Because we are ourselves composites. We're made up of many different parts. Some of our parts, some of, uh, some of us want to eat, another parts want to eat, sleep, another part wants to work, uh, to make money or whatever, whatever it is. But being that Hashem is singular, so expectation is that He should want only one thing in the creation. Meaning that He's crazy, it should only be one thing. And that, says the Mara, by the way, was the source of all idol worship. As the idol worshiper said, look, see, it's a, all this um, multiplicity in the world that we see. We see so many different things. The Mara says, no, we don't see many things. We see one thing. Klausel. We see one thing called Adam. Man. The one that knows God. The one that serves God. And everything else is in one way or another a help to him. A, an assistant, animals and, the, and vegetation and this and that, those are all things that are meant to help him fill up his lack, fill out his lacks. Man has lacks, we need this, we need this, we need that, and uh, all these things are coming to fulfill those lacks. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, yes, Shana? Right? All of them are doing one thing. All of them are doing one thing. They're all providing man. It's all, maybe, again, you're not learning Derech Hashem with your wife. They're all providing one thing. They're all a vehicle to provide man with the man, Adam. Atem Karim Adam. You are man, says the Navi. With a closeness to Hashem. That's the one single only purpose of the creation. And everything else, somehow or another, has to feed into that. So the question is, what do the little green Martians have to do with our service of Hashem? Because if the answer is nothing, then there's going to be a very big philosophical problem. Why would Hashem want both Adam and Martians? Right? That is Jews. that. Like maybe on every planet, there's going to be its own Jews. So I'm saying, so that that that's what that's what the that's what the Maral is explaining. Whether philosophically, there's a big problem with that because multiplicity meaning meaning you want this type of thing, you want that type of thing, you want this thing, is only for beings that are themselves composite and therefore have many different conflicting desires. I want this. And I want this and I want that. So it makes sense that we want many different things. But being Hashem is one, He only wants one thing. Take a look. Maral, Netzach, Yisroel, Perik, Gimel, third chapter. He goes at length. We can't we take an entire shear just to deal with this one point. But that's the point is He concludes there's only going to be one desire. So somehow or another, little green Martians, if they do exist, would need to somehow be contributing to our... Um, Service of Hashem. Now, some people will say, well, actually, there's a Gemara. There's a Gemara in Mold Cotton. It's darshing a Pasuk from Shoftim. Pasuk in Shoftim says that after the one Barak and Devorah were going to war against Sisro, Sisro, the terrible Russia, 
And he was so mighty, so powerful that they were going to need the help of the entire creation to fight against him. Right? Everybody, all the Jews, everybody was going to need to come against him. And, and there's a very cryptic pasuk that says that Arur Meroz, Meroz, a name of some sort, shall be cursed in the, for, for not having joined the battle against Sisera. And literally, and all of her settlers, those that live there. So the, so the Gemara proposes that either it was a very powerful, important person, this Meroz, and he was in charge of like an area, a village, or whatever it is. Right? That's, that's one proposal. The other proposal that says the Gemara is that the war against Sisera was so crucial that even the stars were fighting against him. That Hashem made it that the stars were helping us exactly what they were doing, shooting laser beams. But, uh, but, uh, there was a, but the, the stars were, were helping in this battle. And there was, and, and, and so the Gemara says that Meroz is a star. One of the stars. And this star did not participate in this battle. Mars. What? Mars. Okay. I think Mars has a different name, but but okay. Um, so so there is a so there's a safer uh, there uh, how old is safer? Two hundred years or so called Safer Habris by a rabbi, a very respectable rabbi, not not like one of the Top tier, but uh, with r- real rabbi, who says that whole Yoshevacha, all of her settlers, is talking about the aliens that live on that planet. So he says, okay, there's a safer like that from 300 years ago. Okay, however, there's a Rabbeinu Hananel, the Rach, one of the greatest sources of, of oral tradition that we have. He was the he was the the Rebbe of the Rimigash, Rebbe of the Rif, Rebbe of the Rambam. You're very hard pressed to find anyone more authoritative than him. And he says, what does it mean? Yoshveha? He brings up the first Pasuk from Eov. Pasuk in Eov says, talking about the, the constellation of the, the, the bear, the, the bear constellation. What? No, the other one. The little bear, big bear, I don't know. Uh, yeah, one, so one of those, it says, will you, you know, Eve was talking about how, who can do such things, will you um, drag it, uh, or whatever it is, um, you know, this constellation, um, with her children, talking about, so says the writer, alluding to all the little stars that are in that cluster. The Rock says that's what it's talking about. Okay? There's no there's no there's no Rock understands what you're talking about, Who's who's living in that planet? Says, nobody. There's nobody living in that planet. It's talking about that there's a star and the, uh, the Meroz is a star, and all the planets and all the and all the moons and whatever else that are that are over there, that's called Yoshveha, the ones that are that settle that solar system. And for whatever reason, spiritually, that those 
that 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 star um, didn't again not, obviously not to be taken literally. There's no free will in the stars, but for whatever reason that star did not. Many many Chazal talk about stars moving out of place and doing this and doing that and whatever it means. And this star was put into this type of a position. Okay, so the what's the rach? Seemingly, what is the difficulty besides the fact that I mean, we have no reason to believe these aliens? But if we're saying that they're being cursed, there's these sentient beings over there that are being cursed for not participating, not helping in the war against Sisera. It means that they have to be bali bechira; they have to have free will. And furthermore, they have to know right from wrong. They have to know that they're supposed to help the Jewish people, which means they they somehow or another receive the Torah. Right, which are all things that are so far fetched, so far beyond imagination. Says the Rach, that's not what it means. So again, it's like um, uh, the you know, Ein Lanu Ella, the Kabbalah of Rabbeinu, and uh, you know, the Rach is is definitely the the giant for the Jewish people, Rabbeinu Hananel. And uh, so the Sefer Bris is an interesting comment. Uh, take it with a grain of salt. Um, and again, you know, if if uh, if it's true, it's true. But Hamotzi Mechaver Lavaraya, that that would be that would be someone someone would need to would need to um, bring us some reason to think this. Some reason to think this. Right now, there's, I think, uh, pretty much none of that. Um, okay, any questions about that before we move into the complexities of speciation? Okay. Uh, um, okay, I'm being told that we are not going to make it through all the material we plan to get through tonight. For Hanukkah, right, it's starting to be a theme. Okay, um, let's see what we can do. So first of all, okay, so now let's jump, make the leap of faith. Life came about somehow, supernaturally or, or, uh, or through some as of yet unknown process. Now we have life. So now we're talking about evolution. Evolution is the gradual buildup of complexity. Little by little by little, you're adding complexity. And the reason why it works is because these organisms are constantly reproducing, constantly reproducing, and if you, you, you're having mutations throughout, and those mutations are slight changes, and you try on the new change, and if the new change is advantageous, then quickly it spreads through the population, because the new organism is more advantageous, it can reproduce more, gather more food, gather more resources, and that's how you gradually accumulate change. That was the hop of Darwin. That's Darwin... Uh, Understood that he put it together. It was a uh, incredible theory at the time. Okay, we're not gonna have time to really do a deep dive into this. I do recommend a very good book, Darwin's Black Box. Not a hard read, very understandable, and very good. Very, he's a real scientist, and he goes through step by step by step. The basic, the basic point is like this. Darwin lived a long time ago. Okay? Darwin never saw an electron microscope. Okay? Um, 
His understanding, according to words of Darwin, the simplest form of organic life is not, as commonly stated, a cell, but a microscopic lump of jelly-like substance. Okay? Which he describes, basically, this jelly-like stuff, and it moves around, and it's kind of alive, and it does stuff. And you know, so you just, just when it reproduces itself, it just has to just change a little bit. And then now it's a bit different. Right? So the point is, if you understand that evolution relies on gradual buildup of complexity, and you must have an advantage at every step, otherwise you're not going to move to the next step. Right? Gradual buildup of complexity, advantage at every step. So it depends what lenses you're looking at it with. If you're looking at it with a just a regular microscope, these changes do look very small, little tiny changes. When you open up the electron microscope, you understand that these are that this is the Grand Canyons you're talking about. Where you'd have to leap over them in one jump, right? In order to make it be effective. You understand me? The changes, what look to him like a little tiny change, is actually thousands of consecutive successful mutations which only pay off at the end. Okay, so we'll have to talk about it next time. We ran out of time. That, that was just a preview. I'll explain, hopefully, better next time. So I think what we're going to do is next time we'll do like a focus on the, into Hanukkah, and then and then we'll come back and we'll pick up the the subsequent shulam after that.